0: So last week we heard in 1 Kings chapter 12 how the kingdom of Israel was divided in two. Um, The northern ten tribes of Israel took their own king and then they parted ways with Judah in the south, ruled by kings from the family of David. So it's gone pretty badly since then, especially for the northern ten tribes of Israel who've had a whole string of terrible kings leading up to their worst king, Ahab, about 50 years after where we finished last week. In chapter 17, God raised a prophet named Elijah who announces to King Ahab, there will be a great drought in Israel. So today we're picking the story up again in chapter 18, three years into this severe drought. Elijah is sent by God to see King Ahab and we're gonna begin our reading in verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's asleep and must be wakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged a wood cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command answer me Lord answer me so that these people will know that you Lord are God and you are turning their hearts back again then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice the wood the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench when all the people saw this they fell prostrate and cried the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees.
1: Well, thanks, Audrey, for reading uh, such a long passage so, so well, and uh, yeah, very, very helpfully. Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm uh, the campus pastor here at Trinity Church Tonsley, and let me add my welcome uh, to that of Joe's from earlier. It's great to uh, see you all here today. Um, We've been working through One Kings now for about six weeks, and uh, I do hope you've been finding it helpful if you've been around for that time. Uh, if you're here for the first time, if you're just checking us out, you can go back and listen to our previous sermons all online. It's a good thing to do if you've missed a few as well. Uh, the series is kind of something that all fits together. So if you miss things, you can catch up. Um, what we've seen so far over 1 Kings is, is a, quite a large time frame, actually. Uh, we've covered quite a few decades in uh, the chapters we've looked at. And so today, the narrator really slows things right down for us as we get to chapter 18. And they just talk really about a day or maybe two. Um, So we know it's a really important story in 1 Kings uh, because the narrator's focusing uh, so much time on just one day. Uh, And it's also just a great story, isn't it? A fantastic showdown. I mean, who doesn't love a classic underdog story? Uh, We have Elijah all by himself against the king and, you know, 450 prophets of Baal. And all of Israel is watching on, winner takes all. It's it's quite a, a dramatic scene. I also think it's pretty easy to uh, read an account like this and to feel something of what Elijah probably felt himself. Um, you know, being uh, followers of Jesus in a place like Adelaide, overall it's pretty good, uh, but still we might head into our workplace or our school or perhaps our uni and uh, kind of feel noticeably outnumbered. Uh, the ratio uh, 450 to one uh, sometimes feels uh, quite noticeable to us. Uh, what's more, we don't have the powerful elites, people like you know King Ahab. They're not on our side. Uh, you know, as it were, as Christians. And it's not that we're trying to fight some kind of cultural war or anything like that, but we are trying to win people over to Jesus to help others see what we see, uh, that Jesus really is a great saviour and he's a brilliant king. And so it can feel like we too are outnumbered, outgunned. And it can feel like, well, maybe we as Christians are the ones who are misguided here. We can sort of start uh, having those sort of doubts. And even if we are right, we might feel, even if we're right, just, it's just so hard in a place like Australia to share the good news about Jesus, we think. I think for most of us, we could feel something of how discouraged Elijah would have been, uh, seeing his whole country, uh, seemingly, his whole country worshipping other gods. And they are backed, they are sponsored to do that by the powerful elites of their day, ignoring God and going their own way. I think it's pretty easy to imagine that Elijah would give up uh, his hope that Israel would be a country that turns back to God. I think we can imagine that very easily because I think we too can falter in our hope for our nation, uh, even for Adelaide. As we look out and see the many, many people we share our life and our city with, we kind of perhaps lose lose hope that uh, they too will have a relationship with their Creator and the peace that we can have with Him. I know it's not just me uh, that sometimes that would happen to. I think that's probably all of us sometimes losing heart a little bit, uh, perhaps even losing confidence that Jesus uh, is really in charge of this mission. We can feel up against it, no doubt, and of course that's that's going to always be the case. Uh, Jesus himself was the classic underdog, wasn't he? Uh, Jesus was always in the minority position. Uh, He was always opposed by the powerful elites of his day. And of course, he trains his disciples uh, to expect the exact same thing. He trains us, actually, as disciples to be underdogs, as it were, on mission. Now, it's all fine being an underdog, isn't it? It's all fine being an underdog as long as you win in the end. An An underdog that doesn't win, well, that's just a loser. And no one really wants that. So, what then can we learn from Elijah? Other than how not to barbecue steak, he's not done a good job of that, I do think as we look at this uh, fantastic account this great showdown we'll see something that really encourages us in our mission and our, our discipleship to Jesus so as uh, Audrey very helpfully mentioned uh, the setting for this story takes place during a severe drought it's been gone for three years uh, and you know we're city slickers I, I assume most of us and we're people who buy food from the shops and uh, you know get water from the tap it's good to just try and appreciate what kind of uh, that would be like in the ancient world to experience a drought that goes for three years it's pretty horrible that's people dying kind of territory Uh, drought is deathly now the drought's been going for three years it might be a bit of a shock to realize if you go back and have a look through the person that's responsible for this drought is god it's a bit of a shock perhaps because god is usually so kind he's so generous why would he bring this horrific drought uh, with terrible consequences well, if you go back and read through uh, earlier accounts in 1 Kings, you realize that actually God has warned Israel time and time again. That's what happens when their hearts wander, when they go off chasing other gods. God had warned them time and time again. If this happens, he would send things like drought. The idea being it would hopefully snap them out of it and turn them back uh, to following him. I guess the idea here is other gods, they don't bring rain, God does. And so if Israel are worshipping other gods and praying, for them for, praying to them for rain, well, God not sending it is kind of like a punishment that fits the crime, isn't it? But more than that, God explains that when you have a drought and you're like, well, this is, this is really bad. How can we change this? Why is this happening? God has told Israel the answer is very clear. Just stop worshipping your silly statues. Repent, turn back to me, and I will send rain. It was just a few weeks ago that we looked at, I think, probably the high point of Israel's history as a country under King Solomon, uh, where Solomon had built the temple. And uh, in his great prayer, Solomon, uh, sort of as he's praying and uh, commissioning the temple and committing the whole nation to uh, active service and worship of God, uh, this is part of the prayer that King Solomon prays. And I'll ask Anita to pop it up on the screen. This is 1 Kings, back in chapter 8, uh, which we looked at a few weeks ago. This is King Solomon praying to God. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, it's kind of like, he knows what they're like. And when they pray towards this place, the temple, and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach the right way, teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for inheritance. So here we are in droughts, it's uh, three years in, and I think this, this drought is a pretty good image or a pretty good metaphor for the spiritual state of the nation as well. It's dry, it's barren, and even after three years, no one's really turning back to God. They're not in a good spiritual place, no one's seeking forgiveness. So it makes you wonder, if not a drought, if that doesn't do the job of turning hearts back, What will? I sometimes wonder that for a place like Adelaide, what would it take for people in our city, for our country, to to turn to God, uh, to cry out to Him for help? At one level, I guess I'm seeing here that a drought by itself probably wouldn't do it. I should say as well, just as we're passing through this territory, I should be clear, um, God has made a very specific deal with Israel. He's made a covenant where the terms of the contract between God and Israel are very clearly spelled out. If Israel, on their end of the agreement, uh, their deal, they would prosper. God would send rain and they, would, uh, they wouldn't face droughts. If not, God would send things like drought as punishment, as, as a way to turn them back, as I've described. Now, I want to be clear about that because God doesn't have the same deal with Australia. So if we experience a fire or a drought here, um, those things are perhaps good reminders that all is not well uh, with our world uh, in relationship to our Creator in general. But those things are not a direct sign of God's displeasure at something specific we've done as a country, as it is the case here for Israel. I think it's just worth pointing that out here, that um, we have a very different relationship as, as a country to what Israel did. They're suffering for breaking their covenant promises they'd made as a people. So, uh, for Israel, the drought doesn't turn their hearts back to God by itself. So what does God do? He sends in Elijah. Now, we didn't read this part, but at the start of chapter 18, we find out Elijah is off on his way to meet with Ahab because God had told him to go and do that. It wasn't Elijah's idea. God said, go see Ahab, and I'm going to send some rain and turn hearts back to me. Now, it's worth just pausing and reflecting that God doesn't need to do that. God could have kept sending drought, kept sending drought, kept sending drought, um, just given up, actually, in the end, I suppose. He had every right to do that. He has every right to leave us to ourselves when we ignore him. But we see here, and we see it time and time again in the Bible, God cares too much to leave us to our own devices. And so he intervenes. And here he sends Elijah, perhaps the greatest of prophets in the Old Testament, and he sends Elijah to make quite a memorable scene. Now, in our reading, it didn't start very well, did it? Uh, As Elijah comes and meets with Ahab, uh, if you're looking in your Bibles there at verse 16, Ahab starts this encounter by blaming Elijah, effectively, for the drought. He calls him the troublemaker of Israel. Ahab's not a big fan of Elijah, Elijah, though, is very quick to say, well, hang on, mate, Uh, not quite, you're way off here. Let me just hold up a little mirror to you, Ahab, uh, and point out that you, Ahab, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. That's the problem. It's not my fault. That's why there's the drought. So realize, as this interaction is happening, it's not the rain that's the problem. It's the heart and soul of God's people that's really on the line here as Elijah goes to speak to Ahab. And Elijah's there to set things straight. Now I find it uh, quite amazing that Ahab just does as he's told in verse 19. Elijah bosses him around and he just gets on with it. Uh, that's quite astounding given that Ahab's the king and Elijah's some random guy. Uh, it makes me think Elijah must have been a pretty intense guy. Uh, it must have been a quite something. But a- Ahab does as he's told, more or less, and he summons all of Israel. Although I take it that's probably not every single person, probably more of a representative kind of thing, people from every family or every town, something like that. He gathers to get them all together at Mount Carmel. Now, that doesn't mean much to me. I've never been to Mount Carmel. But um, I did a bit of reading this week and looking online. And I found, first of all, it's actually quite a nice spot. I've got a couple photos here. There's there's a view of Mount Carmel. It's not too far from the ocean. Uh, quite a nice looking little uh, mountain. And there's the view from Mount Carmel looking out. Pretty nice, right? Uh, and then I think the final one, there we go. There's, I think, the top or something near the top. It's a Google search, so we can't really uh, yeah, it depends too much on that being historically accurate, but that's a pretty good setting. It's probably something like that that all, all the people gathered to uh, with King Ahab's instruction. It's a pretty nice spot. Now that's the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned is that Mount Carmel uh, is the main spot that Baal was worshipped. That was his kind of stronghold, and people would go to Mount Carmel to worship Baal. So Elijah is choosing a showdown with Baal on Baal's home turf. Now, for any sports fan here, like, we've got to tell you, that's not a great move, usually. Uh, if you're already the underdog, don't go and play away from home. Play at home. Play where your fans are. Uh, you don't want to give up the home ground advantage. So Elijah's choosing to do that, though. He's choosing to, to go to Baal Stronghold, perhaps because to defeat Baal there would be the ultimate embarrassment to be beaten on his home turf. Now, can you imagine yourself, uh, that sort of photo we saw before, at the top of Mount Carmel, gathering there with, you know, the rest of Israel, I assume that's probably not as green as the pictures we saw there at the end of three years of drought. But picture yourself getting there to this this great showdown, this great spectacle. You get your popcorn, sit down, and uh, get ready. Because here we have the popular god of Mount Carmel, Baal, uh, versus the old-fashioned god, Yahweh. You know, the one your grandparents used to talk a lot about. He used to be very, very famous back in Israel, but no, not so much these days. He's a bit of a stickler for rules. He's not so you know, chilled out as Baal is, and yeah, a bit more, uh, cares a bit more about ethics, unfortunately. Well, verse 21, Elijah gets up and he addresses the people. And I think verse twenty is the real key to everything we're reading today. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. You can almost hear the deafening silence, perhaps a little polite cough from somewhere at the back of the crowd. It's clear no one's going to commit to just one God. I mean, like, why would you? Why not hedge your bets? You know, you could worship Baal, sacrifice to him, he might send rain. You could also worship Yahweh, no worries, he might send rain as well. What's the problem with worshipping both? Let's keep both happy. To worship just one, that sounds a bit bit too much like commitment. And the whole point, then, of this showdown is that committing to God and God alone is right and fitting. Because there's only one God, and only one God has revealed Himself so we might know Him. The other so-called gods are simply figments of imagination or wishful thinking. Now, to say that in our day and age, I understand it's pretty offensive to suggest that, that there is only one God, only one God has made himself known. But I think in this story with Elijah, we see that God really cares about being known. He really cares about being worshipped as the only God. And he cares enough about that to demonstrate it here with Elijah. He demonstrates that so hearts and minds and souls might come to him and to him alone. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let's just uh, see Elijah lays out the basic rules of the contest. You would have followed it, uh, I'm sure, as we went through the reading before. Uh, Verses 22 to 24, he gives the instructions. We're each going to cut up a bull. We're going to put it on wood, on an altar, and we're going to pray to our respective gods. Uh, The God that answers by sending fire, he wins. He's the God. And all the people say, fair enough. That sounds like a good contest. We can get on board with that. I think they're implying, by the way, the people, that uh, they will go along with uh, the God who does demonstrate his power. They will commit to that God. And then to uh, further cement his true underdog status, Elijah even lets the prophets of Baal win the toss. Uh, He lets them pick the bull and go first. Again, in sports, not usually the best thing to give the other team that advantage, but off they go. Now, I should probably just mention a few things about Baal as well. We've got 450 of his prophets. Let's meet Baal and just uh, find out a bit about him. Uh, I think this is a photo of Baal that's uh, been found roughly in this area, I believe, uh, courtesy of Google this morning. Um, I found out this week that B- the Baal was known as the rider of clouds. The rider of clouds. Uh, the idea was he would bring the rain, and therefore he'd bring fertility and prosperity and riches. Um, a lot of statues of Baal, like this one here, I think, um, they're ho- they have their hand up holding a lightning rod, usually. That is, he's on the clouds also bringing lightning. So you would think this contest for Baal should be easy. Home ground advantage, he's the god of rain, And lightning. No worries, you'd think. He should send lightning down and, uh, woof should be a huge fire. It's on top of a mountain as well. It's not hard to get lightning to the top of a mountain, surely. Problem is, Baal hasn't delivered on this whole drought thing for over three years, but, you know, maybe with 450 prophets, they might get it right, he might answer. Especially if Baal gets to embarrass the rival god, Yahweh. Let's find out. Now, it's quite a scene to imagine, isn't it? 450 prophets. 450 prophets, dancing around an altar, yelling out very loudly. Now, 450, that's a lot of people. I don't know how many people is here today, 150 or something like that. Imagine this room, times three, all of us running around an altar, yelling out very loudly. That's quite a scene. That's a lot of noise, a lot of people. All shouting out, answer us, answer us, all morning. You think church goes for a long time, try being a prophet of Baal. You cannot fault their persistence, can you? Verse 26, though, here's the problem. Verse 26, there was no response. No one answered. Now, not to miss uh, the gold opportunity that presents itself for some top-notch trash talk, Elijah starts making fun of them. He's been watching for a few hours at verse 27 at noon. He tells them very sarcastically, hey, maybe you guys should shout louder. <laughs> uh, maybe he can't hear all 450 of you. Now, the other translations you can get of the English Bible, I think are even funnier when you get to verse 27. Other translations are a bit more like, hey, you guys just shout louder. Maybe, maybe he's lost in thought. Maybe he's gone to the toilet. Maybe he's off on holidays. Maybe he's just having his midday nap. You know, keep it up, though. Any minute he might wake up. Some great trash talk from Elijah. What I find hilarious is actually they respond to the trash talk by doing what Elijah says, and they do shout louder as if, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Now, how is this being committed to the cause? Verse 28, they start slashing themselves, hoping that somehow their blood would get a response from their God. Now, imagine that spectacle. Imagine that was church every week. <laughs> I don't know who would be volunteering for leading us in prayer at that point, it would be quite something. But imagine that scene. Blood flowing, dancing, shouting, all morning and now all afternoon. All day. And so verse 29, the ends there. the narrator just makes the, the repeated point for us. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's obvious, isn't it? There's no one there. Now it's clear, isn't it? These prophets of Baal, they're extremely devoted. They're very sincere. They take their religion very seriously, so much so to actually bleed for their God. They're devout. They're praying all day. All day. At one level, I find that extremely impressive. These are very committed, devoted people. But I think it's only impressive if their God actually exists. Like, if Baal is actually there to answer them, it's fantastic. But as Elijah's sarcasm makes clear, it's all a bit silly. Well, actually, it's far worse than that, isn't it? It's tragically misguided if they're calling out to someone who will never answer them. See, no matter how sincere a belief is, and no matter how lovely people may be, we need to remember that not all beliefs are equally well-founded on reality. Of course, we uh, really should be respecting other people and and showing them uh, dignity no matter what they believe. But treating people with dignity may sometimes involve challenging a false belief. Many beliefs are tragically misguided, and sincere devotion to a God who simply isn't there, I think is an absolute tragedy. What a wasted life. Now, the answer to that, though, isn't to just live as agnostics. As we'll see with Elijah, God is very, very keen to reveal himself. God wants to show us he is really there, that he does alone answer our prayers. And we'll come back to that idea in a moment. Because first, we ought to consider if we are in any way like the Israelites here. Uh, Yes, we may be faithful followers of Jesus, uh, but might we also try and just have a bet on another God as well? Not Baal or Krishna or whatever, but kind of backing the other idols, the other gods of our culture? Like, we might be finding ourselves devoting ourselves to Jesus, but also trying to find wealth uh, and all the comfort and entertainment that that can buy to satisfy us? Do we devote ourselves to Jesus and also devoting ourselves to winning the approval of others? Do we devote ourselves to Jesus and also just try and devote ourselves to enjoying life as much as we possibly can? Now, those are all good things, like money, money, Uh, other people's approval, enjoyment, there's good things, but just like as for Baal, those things do not care about our devotion, they do not care about us. They might seem like good gods when there is plenty of rain and there's uh, plenty of things to enjoy, but they're not going to be there when we lose our job or get very sick. These gods will not take care of us, they cannot take care of us in a drought, as it were, and no amount of sacrifice or devotion will change that. And so I think we all do well to hear Elijah's challenge today. How long will we waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If something else is God, well fine, follow that, whatever it is. But we can't do both. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, that we cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and you will end up despising the other. You cannot uh, serve both God and money, is what Jesus tells us. And so these prophets of Baal show, I think, a great tragedy of wasted lives. Often with sincere but persistent worship. They're worshipping things that will not answer us in our time of need. The answer, though, is we get to verse 30. We see it's Elijah's time to shine. He invites all the people to come and watch him. He's pretty confident, isn't he? Come look at me, guys. Watch me do this. I've got this. He starts by rebuilding the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. It's an interesting detail, isn't it? There was an altar there once, but it's been torn down and neglected. I think Elijah wants to make the people watch him rebuild it. I can actually imagine him sort of catching their eye and sort of shaking his head, you know, big, big exaggeration, he moves the stones about, as if to say, oh, I'm not mad, I'm just very disappointed at all of you guys. Elijah, I think, makes a very cutting point as he builds his altar in front of the tribes of Israel. Twelve stones. Twelve stones for each of the tribes of Israel. And no one watching would have missed the symbolism, I think. Israel's Israel's 12 tribes have abandoned their God. Of all the nations of the world, God had chosen them. He'd freed them from, from slavery in Egypt. He'd brought them to the promised land. He'd given them this land. He'd kept every promise he'd ever made to them, and they tore down his altar. I think Elijah would have done it very slowly, as if to make a point. I'm just guessing, though. Larger builds the altar, he arranges the wood, he cuts up the bull, he puts on, he puts on the wood, all ready to go. And then he does my favourite thing on this whole story, I think. Uh, he pours water all over it in the middle of a gigantic drought. What a move. Now, sports fans here will know the term showboating. Uh, showboating, others will know it as well. When a player is just so good, they don't need to be as skillful as they, uh, as they are, but they just want to show off. They want to show everyone their skills, even though they don't need to. They're just outclassing everyone for fun, to make a point. I think that's what is kind of doing. He's showboating. He gets four jars of water, three times a lot of water. It runs over everything. It sort of fills up the, dren- the, uh, the, the trench he's dug around him. And you can imagine all the, all the guys in the, in the crowd being, oh, that's not how you make a barbecue. Just, you know, everyone have their comments about how you should be doing it. Of course he shouldn't be pouring water over it. The other thing that's interesting is 12 jars of water. Four jars, three times, is 12. Again, he's making the point, the 12 tribes of Israel, by rights, they belong to the Lord. They should be the ones making this sacrifice. So I can imagine, quite easily, a bit of a hush as the last jar is emptied. And and Get to verse 36. I'll point out something I'd missed a few times reading this. At the start of the verse, we get this detail. Verse 36, if you have a look, at the time of the sacrifice. That's a small detail, but I think it's actually quite uh, helpful to notice that. At the time of the sacrifice, that is the time of the sacrifice normally offered at the temple uh, in the evening for the forgiveness of sins. So Elijah here is praying, at the time of day, the sacrifice for sins is normally made. Now, just note that. I'll come back to it in a moment. I think think it's going to be helpful for us as we come back to it. But first, let's look at his prayer. His prayer is, I think, very, very simple, especially compared to the prophets of Baal. He's not going on and on. It's a couple sentences. He prays to the God of Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. That is, he's, he's a personal God. And Elijah simply asks, "'Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, "'and that I am your servant, "'and have done all these things to your command.'" Now, by that, that last bit, that Elijah's doing what God has commanded him, I think that's really uh, important just to point out here, because this isn't Elijah's idea. It's not like he woke up one morning and thought, oh, I know how to demonstrate uh, that God's the boss. Um, and thank you to those in my growth group who pointed this out to me on Tuesday night, very helpful. Uh, Elijah is just doing what God had told him to do. Which is good, you know, after all his trash-talking and showboating, he wasn't there standing and thinking like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be standing next to wet meat all evening. He knows that God has told him to do this and he's obeying in confidence that God will see him through. And I think that tells us then a lot about prayer. Elijah has done what God has told him to do and then he prays that God would do his part. Elijah is simply praying that God would do what God has promised to do. And I think that makes a great prayer. And I think overall, this prayer reminds that Elijah, by all means, he looks like the underdog... Uh, but he's not really an underdog if he knows he is on the winning team. He's not by himself. He has the backing of the God who made the universe. He's not outnumbered or outgunned. In fact, it's a completely one-sided contest. The prophets of Baal never stood a chance. And that's important because it's exactly the same for us, isn't it? We might look and feel outnumbered. We may even find ourselves losing hope sometimes, but the same God who told Elijah that he would turn hearts around, he has told us he will build his church and even the gates of hell won't overcome it. He has told us his kingdom will come and a great multitude of every tribe, people and language will gather around him to worship forever. He has told us he has conquered death and he will raise us to eternal life because of his son. And so we can pray with great, great confidence, his will be done is also a great model of faith for us, isn't he? He hears God's word, he's told what to do, and he goes and obeys. Even if he feels a bit silly, a bit exposed, you know, pouring water on a sacrifice in front of all of his peers, he'd feel a bit dumb, potentially. But he prays that God would keep his promises and show great kindness. Sure enough, verse 38, this is the high point of the story, the fire of the Lord fell. It burned up the sacrifice. And interesting, it doesn't say, by the way, it doesn't say it burned up the bull. It says it burned up the sacrifice. Come back to that. It burned up uh, the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, and the soil, and licked up the water and the trench. Now, perhaps, uh, again, it's curse the internet, you know, just uh, something for your entertainment, this might have looked something like this a massive fireball coming down. Uh, just imagine spectating that, whatever it looked like. What a moment. What a moment to see the power of God on display, burning up even stone. And this also shows uh, what a kind and forgiving God is. I pointed out before those small details about sacrifice that kept getting mentioned. It happens during the time of day that animals were sacrificed in the temple for the forgiveness of sins for Israel. The thing with sacrifice is that if, for in order to be offered as a sacrifice, the priest would need to offer it, the priest would need to burn it. And they would do that by faith that God he would receive that burnt offering uh, and forgive the people. What's striking about this sacrifice here, we're told it is a sacrifice here, it's God himself who burns it up. It's God himself acting almost as a priest, offering it to himself. God is offering a sacrifice to himself in flames. God himself is atoning for the sins of his people. Now that is extraordinary grace. Not human initiative that brings forgiveness, God's initiative that does it. That is grace, isn't it? There is no other God who would dare to do such a thing, as far as I can tell. Of course, this is just a small foretaste of the grace that God shows us in His Son. Jesus, the one true sacrifice of sin, He offered up His own life on the cross. It wasn't our initiative. It was His. And He does it so that we might find forgiveness. He offers forgiveness for the times that we have ignored God, that we have given our devotion and our, our praise to other things. Now, the people watching on this extraordinary event, verse verse 39, uh, they show us, I think, the right way to respond to God's power and His grace. And how much more so, by the way, should we respond uh, like this if we notice what's happened on the cross? And three days later, with the empty tomb, the resurrection, beholding such grace and such power, what else can we do too but to, cry, to fall down and cry out, you are God, there is none like you, you are my God. The people are making a renewed commitment to be wholly devoted to the Lord. And perhaps that's a commitment that some of us are due to make today. Verse 39, um, I think they show us the, the right response. Verse 40, nah, not exactly the right response for us, is it? Uh, going off and executing the 400, prophet, 400 uh, prophets of Baal. It's a pretty confronting scene, actually, uh, as we're kind of are skimming through this story. To, just to stop briefly and acknowledge, that's a pretty confronting moment as they're all put to death. And again, it's worth pointing out, their context in Israel is very different to our own. So it's a good reminder, as we're reading the Old Testament, not to just assume everything that we read is somehow an example for us to go and do likewise. That would be mass murder if we did it. It would be terrible. But for God's people, Israel, God had made very clear to them, is it a capital offence, worthy of death, if someone was to lead Israel away and worship other gods? In a sense, these people are just keeping the law that God has commanded from centuries ago. Now, we might have all kinds of good questions about whether that's a good law or not. In fact, if you've been uh, wondering all along uh, why we should believe today in the God of Israel, the God of Elijah, any more than we'd believe in the prophet of Baal, and perhaps feeling a bit put off by the claim that there is only one God, uh, perhaps it does sound very arrogant and disrespectful. I, I appreciate that thank you so much for sticking with me today and and, uh, hearing me out, but I ask you to keep sticking with us in the coming months because I think this is the most important question there is. Who is God? Is there any other like him? Hopefully for you, today you've seen at least that this God does want to be known. And so my argument would be he has made himself known. He's He's made himself known very clearly to us. It's so great you're with us, looking into these things with us. Please keep coming. We'd love to help you uh, keep investigating these things further to find for yourself the God who has made himself clear. At the end of the day, there is no God who has revealed himself so clearly as this one, as he re- revealed himself in his son Jesus, who has shown incredible grace and great mercy. And he's done that so clearly in history, real times, real places. He has shown his great power, even greater power than what Elijah saw by raising Jesus back to life. History tells us the tomb is empty. And so history itself tells us to fall on our knees and to cry out, you, Lord, you alone are God. You alone are my God. Amen.